0: Hello, and welcome to Women of Color Empowered, a podcast where we dive deep into the stories, challenges, and triumphs of incredible women of color who are shaping our world. This podcast is produced by Incandescent PR and Publishing Company. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, the producer of the show, guiding you through these inspiring journeys. This is episode number one, and we have a special treat. So today, we are interviewing the host of the show, Kimberly Lee Miner, who is the CEO of the Women of Color Retail Alliance, an amazing organization, and we can't wait to dive into this. First of all, Kimberly is a professor, a lecturer, a business innovator, and she is the host of the show. So welcome, Kim. I have to tell you, Kimberly and I have known each other since we were 11. We went to school together in Lafayette Hill, Plymouth, Meeting, Pennsylvania, and I have been a fan of hers forever. Our paths seem to keep crossing. And now this year, if I can say, it, we're turning 60.
1: You really yeah. blew people's mind because as I look on the screen, I'm thinking there's no way that we're 60. <laughs> like, I, I don't feel I don't even know what 60 feels like, but we certainly don't look 60. God bless. That's right.
0: Yeah, I'm so thrilled to be doing this with you, so honored. Uh, You have accomplished remarkable things in your career. And today we will start this exploration. So what we're going to do on your show, and I love this, is we're going to ask 10 questions to your guests. And I am going to ask these questions to you starting today. Okay, question number one, we're going to talk about breaking barriers. Can you share a pivotal moment when you felt you broke through a significant barrier as a woman of color there were a few
1: moments and they're moments because they Fleet <laughs> they <go laughs> you realize oh I I've done something here and then the next thing happened but I guess one of the memories that stands out to me is when I was at footlocker and foot locker if you don't know is it was based on a lot of men from Tom McCann came together in foot locker and that's how they grew it um, and then it was Bought by Woolworth, but the same men who had come up the ranks together were there. And so I was the only woman who had a leadership role, and I was the only person of color who had a leadership role. And so I would be in these meetings all the time with just all of these white men. And some of them were very respectful and really embraced the knowledge I brought to the table, and some just didn't. So it made my life very difficult because I was trying to build an organization with, within Foot Locker that would support private label and a global expansion of product for them. And there were some of those men who were just standing in the door and they didn't understand because it was new. You know, no one had done it before. And why Why we bring you in? You don't have, uh, you know, athletic background. And I remember I was in a meeting and one of those people <laughs> was talking loud and not, you know, didn't want to hear what I had to say. And it was like, well, why are you even talking? I mean, this is how like, serious it, it was. And I remember I, I let him finish and then I stood up to make my presentation and I had saved the company $10 million with my strategy of logistics import and the factory and making it a very different relationship and so in in addition to saving the company 10 million dollars that year we had added 200 million dollars to the bottom line and i got to say that and for a minute before i spoke you could see that some of the other men were kind of oh maybe kevin's right Hmm." but after i spoke they all like just didn't look at him anymore <laughs> and they were like okay let's talk like let's let's talk and then shortly after that I won a key contributor award for the work that I had done and that moment really changed things for me as a professional there and I think it allowed them to see a person of color differently because it was after that They actually have started promoting a few who were in the stores and I was invited to more meetings and you could see it changed. Now it changed back after I got pregnant with my first child, which is when I was working at Foot Locker, but that win stayed with me for a long time because it had to, like you you have to have a win every now and then, or just why are you doing it? Um, but, But that stands out. And
0: I think, you know, it's so interesting for women in general to be heard and listened to and feel like we we want to keep this going. I mean, research shows women don't run for office unless they know they're going to win. Well, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting psychology. And men just always research. They think it. they're going to. They, they just show up and they, yeah. yeah. So it's a complex situation for women and especially Women of color, right, which I can't speak to. But, you know, I want to tell our audience, we had you on our Black Lives Matter radio show podcast and video series uh, hosted by Tony Farmer. And that was so amazing because we were having that conversation after George Floyd was murdered. I was inspired to like, we have to talk about this. So this is really season two of that show, but even more to my heart, Incandescent Women is one of my magazines and really shining a light on the spectacularness of women, but also talking about what makes us roll and why we do what we do. So I want to step back for one second and have you just kind of read your resume to us because, okay, Footlocker, and where else have you worked?
1: So We often talk about our professional journey, right, Hope? and, and I, I am a believer of a portfolio more than a journey. I think life is a journey, but you pick up different bags along the way and you create you know your portfolio. And I can't talk about my professional uh, portfolio if I don't talk about my life portfolio, right? And I, because I meet people all the time and they're like, oh, you know, you're just so confident and you, you seem to have been that way since you were young. What is that about? Is that real? what do you what do you tell yourself why you know let's talk about imposter syndrome like all these things and i said well let me just paint a picture so i grew up you said we went to school in Lafayette Hill but i grew up in Country Hocken. so Country Hocken, Lafayette Hill they're they're close very different demographics right Country Hocken is working class mostly row homes and um a very different aesthetic but i grew up in a house with parents who They might have grown, like my mother grew up on Elm Street. She wanted to move up the hill. My father grew up in West Virginia. He came east, right? Because they wanted a different life. And while we stayed in Country Hocken, a lot of that was because my mother wanted to be close to her mother. My life in Country Hocken was different. We traveled. It was all about books and learning. And quite honestly, as a result of that, I had to be a really strong person, strong kid. I had to be confident in who I was because we were the first black family to move into the neighborhood that I grew up in, right? As Laura would go, the person who was selling the house told my dad, I'll burn it down before I sell it to him. And my dad was like, well, that's fine. I have a match because I'm calling my attorney because (laughs) it's against the law for you not to sell us this house. So my wife wants this house. We're gonna buy this house. So when you come from people like that, you have to be like you can either be as strong or you can be very weak because you feel like they're going you can't compete but i never felt like i had to compete with my parents i always felt like they were showing me like they were giving me glimpses and examples of how to be strong in an environment that didn't want you that wasn't going to support you and how do you still show up and so that's kind of who i became because living where i lived the emphasis on learning the fact that I had so many interests, I mean, my goodness, you know, dance and art and, you know, writing, everything. Like I wanted to do everything. Guitar, like I like if it was there, I was like, oh, I want to try that. That's part of life. I want to know. Because that's who I was as a kid, I had to be really strong and I had to be confident in who I was because it was coming from both sides, right? So we're the only black family. So who are your friends on this side? And nothing I thought of But as the only Black family, a lot of the kids who lived on Element Hector Street had a problem with me because of the way I talked, because I had long hair, like nothing that I had to do with, like, it wasn't like I spit on anybody or I talked down, anybody or like had a problem. It was just because this is who I showed up as. And I just, I didn't consciously think it when I was younger, but as I got older and got into high school and- I just was like, "Huh, this sounds like a them problem and not a me problem." Because I'm not doing anything other than just being myself. And why should I make myself small so they can feel better about themselves? They can. They could read books. They could do anything. And so I think I took that attitude, and it just became more and more as I got older and learned more about who I was and what the potential for me could be because. I tried different things and some I failed at, some I did really well, but I saw that the things I failed at didn't kill me. They really did make me stronger because it gave me, it just more informed pictures of who I was. And so when I went into Macy's executive training program, I didn't want to get into retail. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Like I went, I I have my degree in radio, television, and film. I had a jazz show. I was on Power ninety nine. Like I thought that was going to be my path, and there was just something that wasn't happening with it at the pace that I thought it should. And so finally, finally, I remember talking to my dad, and I was like, "This recruiter is just—he won't leave me alone." <laughs> He's like, "Well, what do you mean?" And I said, "Well." Every time I'm like on campus near where he is, he just pops up. And he's like, Kimberly, have you changed your mind? You could take the test. And I told him, I was like, I'm going to college and then I'm probably gonna go to grad school. How am I gonna tell my parents I'm gonna be in retail? Because at that point, retail to me was the mall, right? Who works at the mall, right? And so my dad said, well, tell me more. So we're talking about it. And he came back and he's like, did you know that the Macy's Executive Training Program is like the Harvard of retail. And if you get into the executive training program, it doesn't mean that you get a job with Macy's. It means you've gotten into their little mini MBA program. You're going to school for that anyway. Can't hurt. They're going to pay you while you're there. And if you have the aptitude and you decide you want to continue, then you have a job. I think you should take your ass in there tomorrow and say, yes, I'm going to take the test. (laughs) Right? I was like, oh, okay. So I did, and I, I scored very well, because what I learned is that retail is not about the part-time sales in the store. That's great. You're you're having one-on-one connections with people every day, and I think that's fantastic. And it really gave me a different view of what that is. But it's about storytelling also, and that's what I love doing. I, I love meeting people. I love telling stories and connecting people. And I discovered that that's what retail really was, too. I'm just telling stories from with product. Right. And with the marketing. And so from there, I actually started working there and was I went to uh, Drexel grad school while I was working at Macy's, which was crazy because I worked 70 hours a week. But I worked there quickly, promoted three promotions. Then I got recruited to Express in Columbus, Ohio, which is that's a whole nother story. But while I was at Express and, and these are some of the stories I tell to young people, think about. Sometimes you, you overthink things. And here's why. So I was offered a job at Express. It was a store analyst position and it was part of the financial organization. Now I've always been great with math and and I lo- I love it. It's just not where I wanted to live my career. And so when they offered me the job, it was a Saturday. I, they were taking me around, you know, show me Columbus and the head of the CHRO. Said, okay, well, we're really excited, Kimberly. We want to offer you a job. And, and this is the job, store analyst. I said, What store analyst? I just came from Macy's executive training program. I've had three promotions in less than three years. Store, what's a store analyst? And what does a store analyst do? And what's the next step? Like, what does that career look like? And as I'm hearing myself ask these questions. I don't, I think I was 24. I might've been 24. I'm hearing myself ask these questions and I'm like, okay, go with it. Right. And so he says, well, it's planning, it's financial planning. You'll be part of the planning organization and finance. And I said, oh, hmm. I said, so here's the problem. I really want to work here. Cause I think specialty store is the future department stores. They're dying on the fine. So I definitely want to work here, but I want to be the president of a brand or the CEO you know, of a brand, I don't think this path is going to get me there. It might get me to chief planning officer or a CFO, but I'm not going to lead the brand. And I really want to do that. Like, that's what I really want to do. And so he said, so what are you saying? I said, well, I guess what I'm saying is thank you. But if this is the only job I can have, I'm going to not take it. And so he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, well, what would you want your path to look like? I said, well, I would want my path to look like, yes, I'm in finance. Cause you have to know that that's the basis for any business. Right? So great. I want to be in finance for specialty, but I don't want to stop there. So I would like at some point to be able to go on the other side of merchant because that's who runs the business. And that's where I want to be. And with merchant, I have, you know, connections with marketing and with the stores, and that's what I need to be the professional that I see in my head. And he just laughed and he said, okay, okay, wow, okay. So go out, see Columbus. I'm gonna talk to uh, Michael, Michael was the CEO. I'm gonna talk to Michael and Janice and I'll get back to you. But I have to tell you, no one, no one has ever, ever done this before. I said, I I don't think I would have done it if I thought about it. I said, and they probably don't. And then they leave like in a year or two because that's not what they want to do. He's like, okay. So I come back and he's like, he's the bubbliest guy. He was like, I just have to tell you Kimberly, I'm so excited. I hope you take this job because Michael and Janice, Michael was like anybody who's bold enough at that age to tell you what they're not going to do is definitely probably somebody who's going to tell you what they're going to do. And that experience, it gave me a sense of freedom that I didn't even know I needed, right? Because I was like, oh, you just took control of your future. But if I thought about it, I know this to be true. If I had like just walked out of that office and thought about it and thought about it, I would have never done that. And I wouldn't have been there the amount of time I was there. So I was there for eight years and I had eight promotions in six years and I was key contributor a couple of times and i still stay in touch with the ceo because he was just like man you're just you're good <laughs> i was like thank you very much and i and i also think like that's important that people hear that because we work so hard and we never hear it but the thing that express did that was kind of detrimental is that between macy's and express i did i never had a situation hope where being a woman of color got in my way ever. It just didn't, right? Sometimes I think, why is that? Well, A, I know I busted my ass and I had, my parents would tell me, you know, like my my dad was all about it. Like, you know, if, you, if, you're, if your day starts at eight o'clock, you, that doesn't mean you get there and you have a cup of coffee at eight o'clock. That means you get there at 7, 7.45 and your day starts at eight o'clock. If you want to get promoted, you have to do more than the job. You've got to, you know, like I grew up around that and not a lot of people hear that. And so I knew I want to get promoted. So I need to always look at, okay, well, where's the gaps? Because if I can fill the gaps and move the business forward, I can get promoted. And so that was my take on my career. And and I I was all in, like I, there it was tough. There were toxic people. You know, you worked 80 hours a week. I was overseas my half time. One time I came back from a China trip and I was my friend picked me up at the airport and we were talking and I, I was so tired my face fell in the plate. Like <laughs> I just literally just fell asleep. But it was very fulfilling, right? And so I went on from Express, moved to New York City. That's where I worked for Foot Locker. And uh, I built their private label organization. Funny story, two weeks ago, I'm in New York as I was being inducted as a top retail expert for 2024. And this young man his wife was at the affair and she's like, do you have a minute? And I said, sure. And she's like, I want you to meet my husband. So I said, oh, okay. So she brought him over and he was like, oh my God, I'm so excited to meet you. Oh my goodness. And I was like, okay, why? Well, right. <laughs> nice to meet you too. but..." And he said, well, I work at Foot Locker now and I'm the VP of the of the organization that you built. He said, and people talk about you all the time. And I just, now I have the opportunity to meet you. Like we use all the tools that you created. And I was like, wow, that's a moment. Like that's a moment. That's a big moment. At Foot Locker, I knew I was a woman of color and I knew what I needed to do to overcome that. As I moved through my career, I would say the first big hurdle and, and like, you know, it's like flashing lights, woman of color, woman of color, right? <laughs> it was at loft and loft was female led. The only men were in finance. Yeah. It was all women and just the microaggressions, passive aggressive, like all that. I just, I was like, oh my God, it was so bad. I woke up one morning and I couldn't get my head off my pillow because the stress it caused this rash and i it was horrible horrible and i went back and i was talking to my my designer who worked with me and i was like this is terrible she goes oh is your stomach upset too and i said yeah all the time she said oh and she was asian right so she we had a special bond we were both vps of our areas and she's like here go to my doctor there's a loft like illness (laughs) she said Yeah, it takes a lot for us to be in this environment. And um, that was the first time that I tried to bring the women of color. It didn't have the name at the time, but to bring women of color together. Because as soon as I realized, wow, this is a big problem. When I look around, I'm the only one. There, There are two others who are subordinate but we're peers, so why are they subordinate? They're good at what they do. And I don't have the support. And I see how other people have the support. I mean, even to the point one time I was in a meeting, now I'm the VP of a, of a division, and I made a business call and I said, you know, whatever I said, and the president who I reported to told me to shut up. Yeah. So you know if someone feels comfortable enough to tell you to shut up in a meeting, how you're being treated right? And so that was the first time. And I guess, you know, what I found out later is that the reason that it was so difficult is because at that point, women of color at the VP and above level, we didn't even make up 1%. Like we were 0. 0. 0.4 or 5% of the retail women leaders. And so it just, it was kind of ebbed and flowed. And I went on to become brand president for London Vogue, Joe Boxer, Rampage. Fun fact: Bought my brand. One of my other brands was Bongo. Kim Kardashian worked for me. Um, it was right. Bef- it was right at the time of the sex tape, and just as they were recording "Keeping Up with the Kardashians." Um, so we turned that business around. All the people when they found out I had signed her, all of our retailers were like, "Oh no, we're never going to sell your product." We're not. And our first. Uh, appearance event, the line went outside the building and around and all the people who had called me upset were in that line. (laughs) Like, okay, good. And so moving into private equity and uh, being turnaround teams for different brands, Talbots, Nine West. And then after Nine West, I was uh, called back to L Brands here in Columbus uh, to be the chief merchant for the home business started for home fragrance, and then it built uh, and here's where we talk about the glass cliff. I mean, people talk about that a lot. So when I got there, I was you know, chief merchant for home fragrance. i I was able to uh, add like half a billion dollars to the business with some new programs that I created. and and they're like, oh, wow, this is great. Let's add some more to that area. And so it grew. And then I had, operations and then they asked me to create their strategy organization. And so I was senior vice president when I got there. I was a senior vice president when I left, but I was the senior vice president of one division. And when I left I was a senior vice president of three divisions. And probably a big reason for me leaving because they're like, oh you do you did a great job. You did what other people can't do. But instead of giving you a promotion Kimberly, we're going to give you extra project so you can prove to us that you deserve that promotion, even though you walked in here and this is what you've done. We're just not really sure. We want to, you know, we just want to make sure. We just want to make sure you can handle it. Okay. Well, if I'm going to take on three divisions, what support am I going to get? Because that's a lot. No one else is doing that. You're going to have this, this, and this. Okay. When is that going to happen? Because I know you have already given me dates of expectations of what I need to do. And so it became this fight and I uh, I felt like I lost the fight because at one point I just physically couldn't move. Like my body wouldn't respond to the messages that my brain was sending it. And I went to the doctor and he was like, you're like five minutes from a stroke. We need to get you into a hospital. And so I was out for a good eight weeks. And in my brain, I had failed because I hadn't been able to do everything that they set up for me to do. And I had never been in that situation before. I'd always done it. On top of that was, you know, you have to move. So I had to move my family here. So that's a stressor, you know, all, all those things, balancing it. But in all of that hope grew the business from an operational perspective. I took the company from 35% on-time delivery to 97%. That's money, like that's just money. I led the transformation of all ops and how every function did their job, because we closed the New York office and I was responsible for that. And so by closing the New York office, those functions that were in New York had to be reestablished in Columbus. So I was, I was responsible for that. And the only thing I could think about was I got sick and I was out because that's what they made me think about, right? And and I remember that there was a challenge to me and I kind of put it back on their plate. I was like, I'm sorry, we have to have this conversation, but we do. We had the conversation and they were like, oh. And it made me think of when I was at Express, right? But it was a different response than when I was at Express. They said, well, we'll get back to you. Okay. And that was on a Tuesday. I had come back to work the Wednesday before that. so. I'm back to work for a week. Friday, I had all these meetings with my teams and my admin called me and said, oh, they need to see you at Southern Building. For what? They said they have answers for you. Okay. So I go to the other building and legal and the head of HR are waiting for me in a conference room. And the head of HR says, Kimberly, you gave us some challenges and, and we heard you. But what we've determined is that based on the challenges you gave us, you probably don't want to work here anymore. And we're not, we're probably not getting the best from you. Huh. I said, okay. Okay. So I said, well, do you want to be specific? And so she started saying things. And I said, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is that? She's like, well, it happened while you were away. Oh, oh, okay. So legal is looking at me like, wait you don't know anything about this? I said, I know nothing of this. This is, it's a fascinating story, but I wasn't here and no one told me. And and my boss's name was Amy. I said, I've spoken to Amy. I've met with Amy. Amy never said anything about this. So, and so he was like, oh, so I said, it's right, but no problem. I negotiated my exit before I made my entrance. So I'm good. And so I left. And when I left, I felt so bad because I had moved my family and You know, I just I felt a little broken, right? Because I was like, well, how could I have fixed this? How could I have done better? And I went to my therapist and she was like, You're gonna have to stop that crazy noise that's in your head because you could not have changed it. And if you don't remember, let me just give you a you know a, a little trip through what it was like to work there for the last few years. And that was really helpful. It was really helpful to put it in perspective. And I have to tell you, I feel like while I've been so productive over my professional career, you know, since then I, I have a consult, I had a consulting company and I'm, I was the president of Bandier, which is a, you know, really popular brand in, in New York. And and having that time, it allowed me the freedom to really reconnect with Kimberly And I remember when I said, okay, my my contract, I'm not gonna renew my contract again, because I feel like there's something else I should be doing. And, you know, I left Bandeer after almost three years and decided, it it was before I left there that I actually got with Christiane and Karen and, and we started the Women of Color Retail Alliance. But we actually really kicked it off after I left. And the three of us have been doing it grassroots for the past three years. And I'm just really proud. I feel like I've been the most productive for a bigger cause and to live my life with purpose since I left Bath & Body Works because everything I was doing up until then, it was great to have the titles and the promotions and to be featured. And that, that was great, but it wasn't really for anything. It was for what I was building for someone else. And so when I sat down to see, like to evaluate, you know, this moment in time, Take this path, take that path. Uh, When I looked at this path, I had added almost $8 billion to incremental business to the brands that I had led, which felt good. Like, that's great. You know, a little more than $8 billion. That's cool. Incremental. That means I was still growing it. That's great. But then I couldn't say, like, there were people I had hired. There were people that were doing very well. And that felt good too. But there's a bigger problem. I just lived through a bigger problem. I have people I know who are living through this bigger problem of being a woman of color in this industry. How can I make a difference there? And my focus, I mean, I'm hyper-focused on it now because as of January 2nd, I became the CEO of this organization. But every day I meet someone who says they have been influenced by something they read about, you know, with Wakra, or, you know, a conversation they have with someone or some mentoring, or they met me at an event or they met someone else you know was on our board. And to see that, that is the best feeling I've ever had. Like, I used to think it felt great when I saw my products on people, right? Cause that was confirmation. Yeah. You, you, you've connected. I know it, but now this is affecting people's lives. And I just, I'm, I make less money than I've ever made, like, I mean, ever, (laughs) but I feel like I really have a purpose and I'm pretty proud of that.
0: Wow. (laughs) So much to unpack, so much amazing stuff. First of all, hands down to you. I mean, wow. And you have so much to teach, right? And talk a little bit about that. You are a professor.
1: I am. I am. I never thought ever, right? My mother's family are all teachers. With my mom's not, but like her aunts and my grandmother's sisters, they're all teachers. And I, they would say, "Oh, you should be a teacher, And I'm like, Mm-mm. <laughs> "No interest in that." And then I fell into it. I I have met a woman who was the head of executive education at the Ohio State Fisher School of Business. We met through Chief, which is an organization for women. It's it's really just like a networking organization for uh, women who are. Um, I think VP and above or in the C-suite or something. And we had a really interesting conversation and she was like, you know what, Kimberly, we do so many different things at uh, Fisher. I'd love for you to come in. I want you to meet some people, you know, she said, we have leadership, we have executives, you know, they go into other executive businesses and teach them or, you know, work with their teams. I think there's something there that you might enjoy. So, I was like oh okay like i didn't really think anything of it and then there was a class that she had put together that she wanted me to um sit in and give feedback on the class so i took that class and i was like oh this is cool and and one of the people the one of the people teaching the class like told me that you know he actually had been a cfo with one of the divisions of l brands and this is what he was doing in addition to teaching he was able to be um you know work as a consultant, he could do anything. He's like, you know, there's something about the way you think that I think would be great in a classroom. So then after that, I meet with some other people I'm having coffee. Like it seemed like I'd meet with someone from OSU and then I get a call. Oh, Kimberly, you're available for coffee. Cause I want you to meet this person. And I met so many people and just conversations. Like we never talked about me being in the classroom, just didn't, just talked about my background, you know, what I enjoy. So fast forward maybe a year later and I get a call from this woman and she's like, oh, uh, someone is trying to reach you. They said, you haven't returned their email. And I said, I don't have an email from them, but they can send it here. Maybe they the wrong email address. So they reached out and they were like, hey, Kimberly, based on your experience leading brands, we have a class that teaches only graduating seniors in strategic brand management but it's at the highest level of undergrad. And we need somebody who knows how to like really pull that together. Academics great, but you actually have hands on, like almost 30 years experience of hands on. So I said, okay, so tell me a little more. And so they told me, and I said, you know what, why not? Why not? Like if if I was working, you know, with a brand, I would be doing this because, you know, you're bringing in new people and you're always... I said, okay, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. And then a week later, I got a call from the master's program, the graduate school. Same thing. Hey, the person who normally teaches this class is really stretched. Would you be able to teach this class? And we know you can because we saw you speak at the, okay, two classes. Well, that's really jumping in. And so my first semester was fall. Jumped in. I taught. Inclusive leadership uh, for the graduates. and they most of the graduate students there were um, either getting their masters of HR or MBA. And then, oh and I also did a keynote for the new MBA students coming in. And then uh, the other class is strategic brand management. And I have to tell you, I love it. I really love it. I, you know, it was really funny. Because I posted on LinkedIn, like this is my first day of school. You know, it's been a long time since I've been able to say that, and you know, videoed my path to the campus. And I got so many people who DM'd me and said, "Oh, I've applied to all. The- I've applied several times. Can you put a word in for me? Like, h- how many times did you apply?" And I didn't mean it in a flip way, but I was like, "You can apply." <laughs> right? And they were like. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? You can apply. I said, I didn't apply. I have no, like, I can't help you. I don't know what that process looks like because it really was based on getting to know people and relationships. But I mean, those students, they keep you on their toes. And like today, today was such a great day. I'm teaching them and I'm really spending a lot of time. There are nine elements to building a brand strategy. Your target audience to me is the most important element of that. And you should spend most of your time there. And so I'm teaching them about customer-based brand equity, because that's what really builds the value of your brand. Like people think equity and they think numbers, dollars, right? But it's not about that. It's about the emotion and how far a person will go for your brand. And you want someone that has that emotional and it, it makes them feel a certain way or it makes them see themselves a certain way, but it's all about that connection. And I have spent the last four classes talking about that. So today it was about, okay, so your brand, it's smoke and mirrors, right? (laughs) Like you're delivering a promise, but how are you doing that? And how does that aesthetic and that design, how does that grab a person As part of this connection that makes you a part of their life, and so uh, the the conversation today was so good. It was just so rich, and and that's what I love. Like I I love about that. And then after class, you know, the kids are all around. Oh, Professor Minor, can can we ask you this? Can we ask you this? And you know, and and I know that they're like she's a little kooky kooky because I talk to them all the time about their grades. I'm like, could you please stop texting me? I mean, and emailing me about your grade. Someone missed the class and I grade on attendance and participation because in a class like marketing, that's where most of the meat is. And she was sick and she came to me and she's like, oh, what am I going to do? My grade is down. I said, well, you haven't had an assignment due. She said, what do you mean? I said, so there's nothing you can do because the only grade that's in is about your attendance and you missed a couple of classes. I said, so... Why are you worrying about your grade? Like your grade's not going to come with you, especially about your attendance. I know you're sick. I, I know you were sick. And she's like, but it took my grade. I said, it took your attendance grade down, but you're going to have so many assignments and two big, big assignments. Please don't talk to me about that. <laughs> so she was like, well, I can't do extra. No, you cannot. I said, I want you to learn. Don't worry about that. Like if it comes to when I'm grading and you've gotten A's on everything and that because you were sick, it brought you to a B, I will not give you a B. I promise. As long as when you're here, you are like a part of it, part of the conversation. Um, and she's like, really? I said, yes. Like, why would I hurt you? Like, why would I hurt a graduating senior? Flip side of that though, last semester, I think this is funny. I, I don't know if anybody else does. Last semester, It was the week before the big midterm projects that were due. And I had a student who came to me. uh, It was a week before they were due. Like they were making presentations the following week. I just want to reinforce that. So you have a picture. Came to me the week before it was due. And he said, professor, what group am I in? And these were group projects. So I said, what? (laughs) He said, what group am I in? I so are you is this a joke do you want me to laugh like is this he's like no i said so you have done nothing on the project and he walked away <laughs> right because then i don't think he thought i like and so um fast forward because he got a zero because then he didn't come to the presentation and he hadn't done anything his group came to me and i said don't worry i know i know i know um and then he came to me uh, at the end of the year and he said uh Professor, I'm not going to graduate. So I said, why? <laughs> why? Well, because I I didn't pass your class. So I said, okay, and why didn't you pass my class? He's like, well, you gave me a zero. I said, and what did you do? Like, what did you, you came to me the week before the program. Like, you know, I know you didn't do anything. And he's like, well, I had COVID. I had- and I said, well, here's the thing. When you make up excuses, you have to remember them. I said, because you told me that you missed the presentation because you had COVID. You didn't mention anything before. So I'm assuming that's a zero. He's like, well, I did one slide. I said, how many points do you think you should get for the slide? Because there were 62 slides in your deck. So how many points do you think you should get? Um, if you could just give me 20, then I would at least have enough to pass. I was <laughs> just starting laughing. I was like... Oh my God, this kid is crazy! <laughs> like, is this how you're gonna go through life? But it is, right? It it is, and and I think we've done a disservice. Um, and I, it's just fascinating. I I, I sent a proposal to uh, one of the deans at OSU because I just think that we are not preparing our young people. We we've given them too many pieces of that puzzle, um, and they don't have to figure it out. They don't know how to connect the dots. Um, they don't read anything like it's just fat. and I don't want to put them all in the same box, but repeatedly I see the same behaviors and it's all about a grade when reality is not about a grade It's about how you, do you know how to do the job when you show up? And also, you're not going to get promoted just because you have the job, right? You have to understand you have to communicate and they're just not ready and it's not their fault it's just not their fault. So I'm again, hoping I'm making a difference, but I talk about those things and I'm, I'm always explaining why we're talking about what we're talking about and how they need to apply it. So yeah, it's just another thing I didn't, it's kind of like retail. Like I just didn't know, I didn't know I wanted to do this and I know I'd be pretty good at it. But my son, who's also a senior in college, he had the same class that I'm teaching. He even had the same textbook and he, he was like, Oh, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working on um, a class plan for this project. He's like, you don't need a class plan. Don't you have the Pearson slides? So I said, yeah, I do, but they're so boring. It's just words. And he was like, mom, my teacher who teaches this class, she uses all the Pearson slides. She just puts the Pearson slides and she reads off them. I said, well, that would bore me and I'm the teacher. Like, I can't do that. He's like, so what do you do? I said, well, I, I have some guest speakers. I have video, we play some games. We do, he was like, oh, I wish I was in your class. I was like, well, probably not. Cause you and I in a class would not work. So he's like, he's like about it for a minute. He was like, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but anyway, so that's my, that's my teaching experience. Yeah. The end of the semester would be my first year and I love it. I do. Blown away. Totally cool.
0: Hey, you are so who you were when we met, when we were Olympians. And so much, so amazing. And I actually think you should run for president because you (laughs) would do an amazing job and we need a leader. We need true leaders in this world and you are that. So we have like nine more questions to run through. I'm gonna make that episode two. I want everyone to just absorb who you are as the host of this empowered show, empowering women show. not just women of color, but just in general. And hopefully men too, right? We all
1: need guidance. Absolutely. I was talking about this last week, Hope, and someone asked me, like, why do you only focus on women of color? And I said, well, here's the thing. Our main focus is women. Because when I talk about the numbers, especially in the retail industry, because that's what I know, I talk about women. So if women are 60% of the retail workforce, corporate retail workforce, and they're 37% of the leadership right there is a problem. It's a problem. And then if you look at women of color, which is black, Hispanic, Asian, native, I think indigenous, five groups combined, we are 6% of that number. I think you can see that it's a it's a woman's problem, right? Because until the 6% actually get parity, the whole number will not rise. It's impossible for it to rise. So that's the problem. Here's the solution. If all women have access, then all women will rise because here's the other number that everyone should know. When we start on that path, when I'm at the executive training program and you're at the executive training program, women of color are 18% of the number, and other women are 18% of that number. So white women and women of color are at parity at the beginning. White women go up, women of color go down. And that's ridiculous. And in a consumer-based world, if the parity existed for women of color, that would be an additional $12 trillion GDP. But we'd rather leave it on the table (laughs) <laughs> right so i said so it's not about women of color it's about women and we don't get there by fubu like i just not a strategy i don't believe in it it's just not we get there with the right partners and that looks very broad because everyone should be at the table with us making the change that needs to happen because it benefits all of us and it can't happen because fubu if we are only talking, if there are only women of color in the room, it's a party, right? right? But if everyone is in the room and it's all women and there are men there too, then it's a mission, right? It's a movement. And then we can make the change. And so I think what you're saying is so important that it is about it's about us. It really. It's about all of us.
0: Yeah. And you are a, an amazing leader and I'm your campaign manager. I'm sorely by. <laughs> You know, we need people to stand up and take responsibility to pull everyone else along. And working in an academic environment is wonderful. I think working in a political environment, we'll talk about this later, (laughs) is even better. We need leaders and we need women to know that they're supported. And that's the work that I've been trying to do through my communications company. And I think that we just need to keep doing it and not giving up. Like You have never for one second given up. And on this show, I'm so excited to talk about that mind-body connection. So when, you're, when your body is telling, is screaming oh. at you, right? we need to pay attention to that. We're also going to talk about the fact that women of color die during childbirth at a stupid rate. That's I have a
1: story about well. that too. All right. Too. My, with my young my oldest son. I almost wasn't here. Oh, and we well. don't have time for that story today, but I, I'm a highly educated person <laughs> and I know how to ask questions. And- it's not about that. It really doesn't matter, yeah it's 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 terrible, terrible and and they gave me too much uh morphine and then start screaming at me once they did the all the work they had to do to get it out of my body to get me back to life, like I flatlined and the anesthesiologist had the audacity to come in and start screaming at me. Why didn't you tell us what I never had what? It's my fault, it's my fault, okay. Then she tried to convince me that I was allergic, but I later found out I'm not allergic. They gave me too much.
0: Crazy and not okay, right? And I think that if we can stand together and hold hands through all of this and, and speak out, then, and we're gonna do it more and more, right? At oh, 60, <laughs> right? we're not afraid. I don't think
1: you were ever afraid. I, I was never afraid either. <laughs> no, we were not afraid. I, like. <laughs> I want to talk about imposter syndrome because I just think that is the most ridiculous. Like all of these marketing buzzwords that they throw at women and we take them on imposter syndrome, work life balance. Like there's so many. I hope I can't. I look forward to all of those conversations.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna have them, right? We're gonna have them with truly amazing women that you're yes. gonna pull in that you know, cause you know like crazy cool women, <laughs> just so cool. Yes. And I'm so excited to be the producer of the show. I am so honored. My team is so honored to be working on this project with you and we're just gonna have so much fun. We are, we are. All right, so stay tuned for part two of episode one when Kim is gonna ask, answer the other nine questions on her list of 10 that she's gonna be talking about. But today, was such a blessing to hear about your history and your background and how fabulously brave you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Women of Color Empowered podcast and video series on the Incandescent Radio and TV network. I'm Hope Ketskid, very proud producer of the show. Thank you. Amazing. Kimberly Lee Minor. We will talk to you very soon.